Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking with Hilton Root about his new book, Dynamics Among Nations, The Evolution of Legitimacy and Development in Modern States. Hilton Root, an expert on international political economy and development, is professor at the George Mason University School of Public Policy. He's the author of Alliance Curse, How the U.S. Lost the Third World, and Capital and Collusion, Political Logic of Global Economic Development, among other books. This interview was recorded at the studios of KCUR on the campus of the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Hilton Root, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. I'm I'm delighted to be here. So when did you first realize that complexity science, a system developed for the physical sciences, could be usefully applied to political economy? My first exposure to complexity theory came in the form of shock therapy. I arrived uh, in Caltech in 1983, and... I was prepared to transform the study of European social history by applying economics. My goal was to understand the escape from mass poverty. At a reception for new faculty, I met Nobel laureate in physics, Murray Gell-Mann. He told me the tools of contemporary economics were inadequate for what I wanted to do. They were based on outdated science. They were designed for systems in equilibrium or systems uh, in which you can take apart and view it as a microcosm of a whole, and this is, these are static systems, but social systems are not in equilibrium. They're constantly reacting to their environment. Their environment is constantly changes in response to the actions of the agents. And the tools of economists miss these dynamics. They miss the feedbacks and therefore cannot cope with the implications of complexity on policy. I went off in another direction. I was smitten by the new institutional economics. This was a field that was being developed by Ronald Coase and Douglas North. And I thought I was riding a wave that was to transform economics and provide the blueprint for social engineering that would show the way out of poverty by showing the link between institutions and the incentives for economic growth. Uh, I was right about one thing, which is that the new institutional economics was to be an agenda setter within the social sciences. And it opened doors into the policy environment, especially after the fall of the Eastern Bloc countries. And as a result, I had many opportunities to introduce and transport these incentives into societies where they did not occur naturally. And by then I was at the University of Pennsylvania and my career took a turn towards global development. For the next few decades, uh, in addition to holding academic positions at various universities, I became involved with programs uh, under USAID that were seeking what you might call holistic approaches to economic development. Then I moved on to the World Bank. I studied the economies of East Asia. This list is not meant to impress. It's simply to show that the demand for expertise on institution building in third world environments had become a major specialization in the development community. But what I was seeing was this, it wasn't working. The conventional approaches to setting goals and designing blueprints for filling gaps in social capacity rarely proved successful. Finally, in 2001, I received an opportunity to advise the Undersecretary of the U.S. Department of the Treasury on Development Finance. And this gave me a a first-row seat to observe and and even to influence the most powerful policy-making apparatus in the developing world. From this, I came to the 
realization that the tools, the models, the frameworks with which we approach development and with which we understand our influence or our role on global policy were inadequate. And even more important, I learned that being a member of a large government bureaucracy is not the time to revise one's beliefs. The learning goes on before you get inside. So once you are in, you are overcome by an immense inertia of organizational protocol and routine. And I realized that our conception of globalization and of liberalism needed an entirely new script. Our advice did little to stem the persistent ungovernability and policy failure in developing regions, and the grand theories of social change failed to establish robust correlations between what we expected to happen and what actually occurred. The theories, and modernization theory is really the bedrock, it's a foundation upon which even developmental economics rested, were preventing us from seeing the gaps between our vision and the effects of our actions. And it wasn't until I fully embraced complex adaptive theory that I was able to answer the problems that had occupied me for so much of my professional life. So let me see if I can construct a metaphor, at least as I understand this book, that might help people. Is it fair to say that traditional development theory, really all the way up to national institutional economics, NIE, which was big in the early 90s, all the way really through the 2000s, there is in each one of these kind of a sense of, well, once we figure out exactly what the secret sauce is that creates a Western liberal market economy, all we have to do is transplant that particular thing, whether it's institutions, whether it's smart free uh, free trade, that there is a single magic bullet that can do this. And none of those worked out. Whereas opposed to, say, a complexity evolutionary look at it, it's like you should look at each community more as a particular garden. And just because you had success in one garden with a with a certain thing doesn't necessarily translate that you're going to, that that particular country, that particular social system is going to be successful in the same way just because Again, continue the metaphor, the sunlight's different, the soil is different, that you just can't transplant one crop to another. And I know that is a vast oversimplification, but is that a way for people thinking, for maybe think about where the split is between what you were initially brought up in and what you're working with now? Well, there's, it, it, it's, it's, it's relatively accurate. Uh, it's accurate in the sense that um, what may be successful in one environment may actually be deleterious in another environment. And the reasons for this uh, have to do with the dynamics within complex systems. And these dynamics have never really been studied by economists because they are interested in equilibrium systems. They're interested in static comparisons. Uh, they're interested in single representative agents. Um, they don't like heterogeneity, they don't like diversity of actors, and they all really don't even like actors that communicate with each other and behave strategically. So for those and many other reasons, they were finding solutions to relatively simple problems, or I should say complicated but simple social problems, but they were missing the system-level dynamics and then we had the global financial crisis in 2008, and, and that was all about system dynamics. That was all about the things that econ economists missed. Let's go back to the end of the Cold War, late 80s, early 90s. There was a real palpable sense, particularly during the end of the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, and during a lot of the Clinton administration, I'll say Western liberal triumphalism, that the Cold War was over and the, the West had won. And 
that sense of that we were the, that that system was the way the world should be shaped really took over and to some degree is still in the in the world system too a lot people know about the washington consensus but as you put in your book that triumphalism was a bit of an illusion if we were to go back to that period what is it that development officials in the west missed about the nature of the world that caused them to miss the boat on how things would end up developing they were mistaken a transient moment in history for a global trend uh, that had some kind of historical inevitability, what Frankie Fubiyama called the end of history. Uh, that was a terrific mistake. Policy diffusion is not unfolding globally the way um, theories such as the end of history predicted. Liberal internationalism was the West's foreign policy agenda since the Cold War. And one of the things that we didn't see about that agenda is that it had us being at the top rung of a hierarchical ladder, and it presumed that people would follow our example by imitation because they would admire our success and they would want to imitate it, or in Fukuyama's words, they would want to rival our success, and so they would need to replicate our our trajectory or our path. There are some fundamental problems with this view. One, powerful trends in world politics are dissolving the top-down structure of traditional power relations. First, there's technology, but also there's demographic trends that are changing the relative demographic distribution of the world and therefore uh, the distribution of resources. So the, the liberal internationalist foundations are that order is decomposing and and one of the aspects that's contributing to or one of the forces that's contributing to that decomposition are new flows of global resources new trade and power relationships and the fact that the average number of countries one that a country trades with today has uh, increased by about fourfold so in other words, in the 1970s, countries might have had 20 trading partners, and today they have 100. Uh, and that means that the liberal West, which was the focal point of world trade, is no longer in the center of the system as it was once. So there's no longer this vertical trade flows, um, and therefore the belief transmission doesn't necessarily need to move from the West downward. Along with this Local cultures and values are becoming global information sources. What's happening in Turkey is influencing its neighbors in, in ways that have much, much more impact or much more impactful than what's happening to our democracy. So the new global diversity uh, is running contrary to the laws of, do- of, of most uh, international relations theories. So instead of the top-down emulation, this Kantian inculcation of norms, we're getting diverse agents that redefine the optimal strategies for one another through feedback loops and for themselves. And we're getting myopic local contests, like what's happening in the Middle East, that are determining the governance forms that those countries in that region are taking. So we're getting novel strategies for survival, and this is increasing global complexity. 
Let's talk about a specific country that's, that obviously weighs heavily in your book, and that's the People's Republic of China. Again, if we were to look at them from the lens of traditional Western development theory, and even as you point out, if we were to go back 20 years, looking or 25 to 30 years, looking at where India and China started, traditional theory would say, well, India actually had better advantages to moving forward economically than China. Well, obviously, the proof is in the pudding. China is a much richer country, second largest economy in the world. Uh, and I know that there are developing countries around the world that are now saying, well, we've kind of had it up to, up to the back of our teeth with the Washington consensus, and this is how Washington says we should do it. Perhaps Beijing has a new way to look at the world in which you can have the economic development and become a very rich country without necessarily having the elites hand over power to kind of a messy democratic process. So is China a new model or... Given this question we're talking about, about uh, you know, specific circumstances, is how China developed in, let's say, the late 20th and currently early 21st century just as much of an anomaly as, say, how America developed in the 19th and 20th or even Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries? All that's correct. China is, even if it's an anomaly, it's an attractor. And it has enormous gravitational pull. China's behavior mattered very little when it operated in relative isolation uh, from the world economy. But this is no longer the case. Since the early 1990s, as you mentioned, it's one of the fastest-growing features of global trade, has been China's role in influencing global economic interdependence. Uh, China's ascendancy, its success, is creating fissures in the liberal international regime, and this is why... uh, it doesn't matter how much of an exception it is. Its influence is potentially enormous because its expanding commercial network is transforming into a political and intellectual network that transfers its model of development, authoritarianism, to its trade partners. So the question we are now faced with, and this is a question, one of the questions that institutionalists ignore, because the institutionalists are still fixated on the fact that this country is an anomaly, as you said, and people like Doug North and, and especially uh, Asimogul and Robinson believe that China is going to implode the same way the Soviet Union did. But China may have a completely different impact on the system. It may redefine the system-level rules, not just the strategy of the players, but the behavior of the system itself, the, the system of international relations that had been to a great extent determined by liberal internationalist perspectives. Now, now, several key precepts of liberal internationalism, democratic community, shared sovereignty, the right to protect, these are all threats to China's security. Uh, China has territorial claims to Tibet, claims to Taiwan, uh, the South China Sea, and these are not recognized. This makes China the only member of the UN Security Council whose territory is still contested. So if even if China, well, let's put it this way, China does not adhere to strict protection of sovereignty because it could be subjected to interventions on territories that it claims. And therefore, its form of government is out of alignment with the, the objective of global or democratic convergence that the U.S. and the West has been hinging its own security on. Another point that I think is critical that the book raises is that globalization is not giving us the China that we wanted, nor is it giving us the China that we expected to have. Why? Because the West wanted to believe that China would be led by, by trade openness to become a, a responsible stakeholder. This is the phrase that 
was coined during the first Bush administration, that, that it would play a constructive role in international affairs. But this view of China's inevitable evolution into being a responsible stakeholder is based on two key assumptions of liberal internationalism. One, isolating China from development and collective security was a source of great potential instability. And I think we agree with that. And the best way to mitigate this instability was to expose China to the benefits of globalization. So the West believed that, that China needed more incentives to become a responsible stakeholder and, 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 and inevitably would enter in collab, into collaborative engagement with other nations in the sense it would, that, that global commerce would eventually reorient its relationship to the world. This is a basic enlightenment theme uh, that commerce would have this beneficial effect. And it was, of course, predicted, uh, predicated by China's economic linkages with the West and on liberal idealism that China would inevitably come to accept democratic, democratic reform despite the wishes of its senior leadership and that it would eventually convert to liberal principles. This book casts significant doubt on this proposition. Hilton Root, the author of Dynamics Among Nations, The Evolution of Legitimacy and Development in Modern States. Thank you for talking to the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, thank you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can follow the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Alex Smith was the engineer of this show. I'm Chris Gondek. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2013, the MIT Press. All rights reserved. <laughs>